Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Joe McCall, Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. How's it going? This is episode number 15 of the Deals Gone Bad series. And this is going to be a great interview with a good friend of mine, Bill Allen. A lot of you all know Bill from Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. He also has a, a real estate investing company called Blackjack Real Estate. Bill is a great guy. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last... And I knew I was friends with Justin Williams, the guy he bought the company from. But Bill is one of those few guys out there who really cares about integrity, who cares about seeing people succeed. And I think you're going to see that in him as well um, as he shares on one of his deals that went bad. But a few, real quick, a few house cleaning announcements and stuff like that. Right now, as I'm recording this, we are live on YouTube and Facebook. So if you're watching, even on Periscope, believe it or not, if you're watching right now, I just want to say hello, type in the comments, say hi, tell us where you're from, give us a thumbs up, like the video. And if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to this channel. We release about two or three episodes every single week. A lot of them are interviews and a lot of them are straight up content, teaching really good stuff that I know you're going to get a lot of good um, value out of. That's number one. Number two, we are collecting all of the notes from all of these lessons learned from the Deals Gone Bad series, and we're putting them into a resource. Right now, it's in a mind map. Pretty soon, it's going to be a PDF, and it's going to be a book, maybe. I don't know yet. But if you want this for free, all you need to do is text the word BAD to 313131. Text the word BAD to 313131. We'll send you a text back with a link, and you can get it. Or you can also go to joemccall.com slash BAD, and you'll get all of the notes from all of the lessons learned, some crazy stories. But the awesome thing I love about this series, everybody is rebounded. Everybody I'm talking to here has had successes and failures, but guess what? They haven't let those failures keep them down. They've bounced back and are stronger now than ever. You know, I've said this many times on this series, smart people learn from their mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. And so my hope is that you will get a lot of good lessons learned and things that will help you avoid these same mistakes and roadblocks and things like that. Okay, cool. All right, let's bring uh, Bill Allen on. I'm always jealous of his studio. I know you can only see a portion of his screen right now, but he's got a really cool studio. What part of the country are you going to get again, Bill? We're, uh, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. So we're in like a suburb just south of Nashville called Spring Hill. So right. it's, a, it's a little strip mall office that we just rented uh, January and have been slowly kind of trying to make the, I don't know, make the podcast look good, make the videos look good, YouTube videos and stuff. So this is what we've come up with now. So They're really good. And you can only all see a short portion of it, but go check out his podcast, Seven Figure Flipping on YouTube and in Apple Podcasts and all that. And you can see his studio is, produces a lot of really good content. You just did a recent event that was a big giant success. I watched um, at least probably five or six hours of content content and videos over it was a three-day event wasn't it it was yeah yeah i'm glad that you watched so we had a really good uh, time producing it it was phenomenal you had your own students and other investors that you guys network with that did a lot of the teaching and um, the value was really good. I learned a lot of cool things as well. Wish And I got the recordings, so I'm looking forward to going through the recordings. Do you still, by the way, if anybody is interested, are you are you selling the recordings to that event? Is that still yeah, available? Yeah, we are. I, um, this is the first time we've actually sold the recordings and they're not cheap because you know the it's a three-day event that we put on 
And I was able to get the recordings from all the keynote speakers. So we pay some keynote speakers. And usually I can't allow, they, they won't allow me to, to have their recordings bundled in. So we have to take them out. And this year I was able to negotiate to keep their, their recordings in. And so they, they can go to fliphackinglive.com and check that out. I think we'll, we'll probably sell the recordings for a little bit longer and have access for at least a year. Usually it's kind of hard to, we usually don't take the access away or anything, but we'll yeah, guarantee yeah. it year unless we move platform. So yeah, it was it was a really good time. And I, I think it was the best event. It's our fifth year doing it. I think it's the best one that we've put together. I really enjoyed it. Fliphackinglive.com. Check it out. There's only a few events in our industry, in our space that have the caliber and the quality of the education and teaching that Flip Hacking Live has. And uh, Justin started that five years ago. Is that right? I thought it'd been longer than that. No, this is the, this is the fifth, fifth year we've had the event. I think Justin started probably, you know, eight, eight or nine years ago. So with the other things, but the Flip Hacking Live was probably like four years in the first time he did that. We had about just over a hundred people at that first one in uh, San Diego. It was a real small conference center, but we thought it was huge. You know, we thought 125 people in a room was massive at that time. So and we had about, uh, we had about 800 people at this event attend. Uh, it was a virtual event that we did, as you know. I was with Justin in a mastermind where he was talking about doing that and um, he was very excited. It's a big deal to put on an event like that. So I'd encourage y'all to just go check it out. Fliphackinglive.com, see what the recordings are and get them. All right, so deal gone bad. You, this was a deal. I, I saw this and I thought, uh oh, you got sued, Bill, on a house that flooded or something like that. So, what happened? Well, yeah, before we start, I just want to say, uh, I can't believe this is episode 15. This is awesome. Yeah, I just saw a post. It was, it seemed like it was just a couple weeks ago that you said, I want to start this thing. And yeah. a major action taker at 15 episodes right now is pretty awesome. So, I got about 10 more lined up. I guess everybody has a ton of bad, <laughs> bad deals, right? Yeah. But I just say, like, thank you to you for putting this together because for those of those of you that are watching this or watching it later, you don't understand what it takes to, to take the time away and put these episodes together and get everything sorted out and get like our crazy entrepreneur schedules to, to link up. So thanks for doing this, Joe, because I'm, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that book myself because like you said, uh, I want to learn from all these other lessons too. There's yeah. no reason for us to make them over and over again. So for me, like the one deal that keeps, <laughs> keeps coming back to me, <laughs> I actually own the house again, by the way. So this house I bought, it was a time in my career where I had had some success flipping houses in the early, I've only been doing this for about, about seven years and about five years at scale doing like, you know, a hundred houses or more a year. And what happened was I, I started getting into more expensive houses in Pensacola, Florida. So the median home price there, 150,000, something like that, 160. And so those, that that's where I stay now. I don't really go over 250,000, but this was a nicer house on the water. It's the third one that I bought and none of them were really that great for me. One of them, I lost $70,000 on the other one. I lost $50,000 on, and this one I made 10 on, but I bought them all around the same time. And what I thought was bigger deals, bigger houses. I had the money, you know, I had the private lenders and everything, bigger profits, right? What I didn't think of is bigger losses too. Lots of other things that had to happen in a more expensive house. But this house is on the water on Pensacola Bay. The owner, and it was direct to seller. All these were direct to seller. Why, why Florida, not Tennessee? Uh, so at this time, I, I actually lived in Pensacola, Florida. So I started my company in Pensacola and um, I was flying for the Navy and I, that's where I lived. And that's the only city I invested in the beginning. And so scaled up my business there. Then we went, then I moved to Nashville and I didn't go into Nashville. I went into Chattanooga, which is about an hour and a half from here. And then we ended up going into, uh, into Nashville also. So it was kind of at that time, that's, that's the only place I was investing in. The family that owned the house had lost their son. They had a son that was about 15 years old, lost their son. He got, he was killed. And that house brought back just horrible memories for them. He loved to fish and go out on the dock and do all the things around the water. And they just wanted to get out of there. So I ended up buying the house. We, we renovated it, fixed it up and put it for sale. And it, no problem. We renovated it, fixed it up. Beautiful house right on the water. We had a contract in two days and we were going to target and make about $120,000 of profit for this house. So somewhere in the $600,000 range we had on our contract for. And 
the woman did a ton of inspections and I was kind of cocky at the time. I thought that, you know, one day it was on the market, it's for sale, it, it's under contract list price, you know? And so she started negotiating things and complaining about some stuff. And I said, you know what, this is not our buyer. Let's just put it back on the market. And so I wasn't willing to fix a lot of the things that she was, she's just very demanding. And we ended up canceling the contract, putting it back on the market. And it just sat like sat and sat and sat for months. Uh, I was lowering the price and now that was in the summer. Now it's starting to get towards winter time. And what I realized is these expensive houses in Pensacola is not a big market for people that want to buy those houses, right? There's not people lining up looking for a, And if they are, they can be really picky and they can you know, decide what they want. And they want like specific upgrades. If there's just one thing that's off for them, they won't buy it because it's a, a five times the price of any other house in the market, right? These are yeah. less buyers, very picky. And so the high-end market in a more of a low-end area, it's challenging. So longer days on market. So I we just kept dropping the price. We eventually sold the house. And so we sold it for 525,000. I think we had it under contract for like 650 before that. So we ended up making $10,000 on this house. That doesn't include like uh, some of my money that was in there, like company money. We didn't put a cost to that. So ultimately we probably lost money. You know, if you think about it, if I was borrowing that money. So making $10,000, we got rid of the house. We were ready to go. Just move away. I'm going to say we did multiple. There were three WDO inspections for this house. So wood destroying organisms inspections. I never heard it called that before. WDO? Yeah. Termite inspections. WDO inspections is what uh, we call it. That sounds like something a military guy would say. (laughs) Yeah. So we did three of them and we fixed everything in all three. And I say that for a reason because it's gonna, this house is going to come back around to me. Yeah, um, yeah. Wood siding, uh, wood decks, all kinds of stuff. We, they found some wood rot around one of the windows. So we pulled away all the siding uh, from the window, fixed the window, trim everything, put everything back together. When we were doing that, my realtor was on her boat taking some pictures of the house to list. So she had some pictures that went on Zillow and you could see some scaffolding as we were taking it uh, down the siding for the window and fixing it up. And so if you went on a Zillow, you could see those pictures and you could see this scaffolding and some, some, uh, some ladders and stuff over there, things getting fixed. So about two years later, so we sold the house, $10,000 profit, and I moved on. Like, right, I moved to Nashville, built my company, and I got a letter in the mail uh, to my attorney, actually, in, in, uh, in Pensacola, and we're getting sued. So there's, it's a demand letter saying that they found a bunch of wood rot around the windows. We knew about it, uh, threatening stuff saying, we will walk away, like pay us $20,000 and we'll go away. And so that's, that's what I got for this house. This, this letter about, is about just under two years later after we fixed it. And you, you think you it was, uh, you know, they're just doing this to shake the tree to kind of see so, if you can settle with anything. So that, that's what I thought. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. This never happened to me before, right? I've heard of it happening. And, I, you know, I, I was in the seven-figure flipping mastermind group. So I'm posting like, hey, anybody had this happen before? A bunch of people saying, yeah, I did this. Uh, I, some people just like pay it, let them go away. Don't pay it. That's crazy. Negotiate. Just, you know, tell them to pack sand, go to court, uh, do all that stuff. So there's a wide range of kind of histories of what other people have seen. For me, I felt like if I paid them a dollar, I would have been admitting to the fact that I did something wrong. So you mentioned integrity in the beginning. You mentioned the military background, all this stuff. I just, I just couldn't accept the fact that I would pay somebody money to go away. And so it's not something that I even thought about. So mm-hmm. I talked to my attorney. My attorney doesn't litigate those kind of issues. She recommended another attorney. I talked to him and he was like, the lawyer that they have is a shark. Like she just goes after people and will just go and go and go like a bulldog. And so he kind of, you know, made me kind of think about, and so we did a consult with him. 
we, I paid him a retainer to kind of just talk to me a little bit, try to figure out what I should do. And his recommendation was that we go to mediation. So the next step, if I'm not going to pay them that, then we go to mediation. Mediation doesn't work. We go to court, right? And so I said, all right, I'll go to mediation. And for me, I'm thinking mediation is something that you win or lose, right? Like I'm going to go and somebody's going to say, yeah, you're right, you know? And so I showed up, I had to go down to Pensacola. I had to go from Nashville to Pensacola, uh, show up for mediation. I showed up in the morning at nine o'clock. My attorney was there, their attorney was there. And then there's another attorney that shows up kind of as the mediator, right? So he does the mediation at his office. And so I walked in and I sat across from these people and they wouldn't look at me. They wouldn't, they, it was obvious that they hated me. Like I was this big, bad house flipper that had screwed them over and their attorney, it was very obvious when their attorney started talking though, that they were being they were being manipulated. Like the attorney was trying to help them. They were feeding, like if they had just come to me and talked to me, and I, I said this right in the beginning, if somebody just came to me and said, hey, we got this problem, I would have helped them. Like I, I could have got the work done for a third of the cost that they paid to fix it all. I could have, I pro- and I probably would have paid for it, frankly. You know? Well, what, talk about what the problem was. What were they complaining about? So uh, we eventually got pictures and the, the way that the one window that we worked on looked, um, all the windows were like that. And so what happened was they started, they started to see some, some deterioration in the siding. And then they had somebody come out and they ripped, they ripped off the siding there and they, they found that. And then they, they kept digging and kept digging and kept digging. And they found a bunch of wood rot that was behind all the siding and, okay. um, and sheathing of the house that we never would have seen. Like we didn't replace so the window. You didn't replace yeah, any of the siding. No, we didn't replace any siding. We didn't replace any windows. In fact, the one window that we did repair looks perfect. It looks brand new. And so they showed pictures of everything and it looks really bad. It does. But I mean, I had three independent WDO inspectors go there, like, you know, termite wood rot inspectors go there and poke at every single piece of that siding everywhere. And we fixed everything three different times for the first buyer. And then for them, you know, we, we after the first buyer left, I did another inspection personally and, and to cover, to, to make sure that we did everything right, got checked off. And then we f- made a couple other repairs. And then when the next buyer came in, the second buyer came in, they did another inspection. We repaired everything for them. So like, I'd already spent, you know, $5,000 probably on wood rot repair and things like that at this point. So it just all kind of like turned into like, they just went straight to the lawyers instead of coming to me. If they came to me with some problems that they found, we, we would have helped them out. I'm certain of that. You know, I'm not going to turn away. And, but you, the first letter that you send me is a $20,000 demand letter, basically, of uh, you have 10 days to see if it's $20,000 or we're going to take you to court. Yeah. That's what this letter said. And so, you know, I kind of went to the attorney and because I didn't want to go straight to the, the buyer, you know, and go straight to the buyer or the realtors. I didn't know what that would do with that attorney, if that attorney would take that and use it against me or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So, so we went to mediation. I showed up and I had no idea what I was going to say. But when we walked in there, they said, okay, now that we're here, it's $40,000. And yeah, that immediately, and my lawyer warned me, he said, when we walk in there, she's going to probably double or triple the the amount just to shock you right there and see how you react. And so I just sat there and then we, you go to separate rooms, you do the opening and then you go to separate rooms and they sent across, you know, $40,000. And I just said, no, I'll pay you nothing. And I said, zero. And then the meteor was like, you know, obviously they're not going to go for that. So give me something. I said, I'm not willing to, to pay $1 to say that I did anything wrong here because I didn't. And so they, he took that back and then they uh, sent back like $30,000. And I said, look, the only way that we're getting out of here with a, an agreement is if I buy the house back. So I'm willing to buy the house back for what they paid for it. Wow. So, so we, I sent that back to them because I just was not willing to write a check. I feel like if I, I, I feel like if I wrote a check, I would say, yes, I did something wrong here. 
And the reason I didn't want to go to court was because if you go to court, there's a just a jury and a judge of people that are going to, it's like a 50-50 shot of, you know, it could have been really bad. Like I would, mm-hmm. I could have had to pay $100,000 in court or nothing, right? And I just... No, but you still would have had to pay legal fees. Yeah, and well, a lot of times, you know, the the losing party will pay the legal fees for the prevailing party, right? So, and it would have cost. Yeah, they could have dragged it out really long. It could have cost me thirty, forty thousand dollars just to pay my legal fees, getting ready for that with an unknown re- response, right? An unknown outcome. Sure. And then it could have gone up over a hundred thousand dollars, and not something I was interested in doing either. So, I, so I sent it back to them, say I'll buy the house back, and they were like, because I, I knew that if I wasn't sure if they were really like really disappointed and, and distraught, like they said they were, or they were just looking for money. So I figured that would be a good test to see if they were willing to pick up all their stuff and move out of this house because they don't like it, or if they just want cash. Sure. And first they said no, like they had done all these repairs and work to it. They built a dock and a fence and they redid the deck and they redid all this wood rot repair and all that stuff and custom shelves and did some painting and things, all these things, right? Because they were saying that this is our retirement house. This is the house we want to live in forever. And now it's it's in such bad shape that we cannot even go on with our lives is basically the, the opening statement that they gave. So I said, okay, well, how much was all of that? Just add it to the bill. Just add it to the price of the house and we'll come up with a number that I'll buy the house back for. And because I was doing some math in my head of what I thought I could sell the house for today, it was a couple of years later, the market has gone up. I thought I could get a good price on the house. And if not, I could, you know, the Airbnb market there is really good. So I was running the numbers on what I could rent it out for on Airbnb. And the other thing is I wanted to protect also my contractor, my realtors, and all the other people that were involved in this. Because if I walked out of there and I paid them, that doesn't mean they can't go sue my contractor and can't go sue my realtor and all this other stuff too. So um, did they name those other people on the lawsuit or is it, it was just you? No, it was just me. It was more like a threatening letter at this point, right? Sure. It's not a lawsuit yet. And it's um, and so my intent was to go in there and make sure that I protected everybody that was involved in the trans- uh, transaction because they were they were friends of mine and people that I've done business with and will continue to do business with. So we ended up, like, it took all night, but we ended up writing up a real estate contract for me to buy the house back cash in just enclosed in a couple weeks for a hundred. It's probably about a hundred and twenty thousand dollars more than what I bought, what I sold it to them for. So I ended up twenty grand more. Yeah. So they did. You know, they had like an electric lift, a boat lift put in the dock, and they did some work to the pool, like all kinds of stuff. And so I, I just had them tally it up, and it was. Uh, so we, I think I bought it back somewhere around six hundred and forty thousand dollars or something like that. Wouldn't it so, just been better to pay them the forty grand, thirty grand that they? Well, looking back, you would think that, that that's that's true. And uh, and Joe, you might be right. In the end, we'll we'll see how this ends right. up. You might be right. Uh, I'd say the hassle factor alone at this point, you're probably right. But for me, it was just kind of, it was more of a principal thing than anything else. Like, I don't think the money is really, they, they could have, I mean, they could have said 50 bucks to be perfectly honest with you. And I would have said, no, it, it just, it just was a lot more sure. at, at that time. And now, frankly, that I want to, I want to own and run a company that I can say that like, I'm sitting there going, what kind of story is it? If you write a check for $20,000, something that you know, you didn't do that you're in the right for versus buying a house back and, and given the people like, what do they feel about me when they walk away? Like I wanted to, I wanted them to walk away and say, you know what? That guy is a, is a stand-up guy. You know, he's actually mm-hmm. doing what he said he's going to do. We don't want the, what he's selling, what he sold us. We don't want it, but we're, he's willing to take it in return. Right. And, and him deal with it and go through that. As opposed to, I wrote a check for $20,000. They feel like, like I was a bad guy. Like I actually did know about it. That's why I'm writing that check. And I, you know, there's probably some business people on the call right now that are watching this or will watch it or listen to it later. Like this guy's an idiot. Like he should have just wrote a check for 20 grand in the first place, save himself time, move on. It, you know, company makes a million dollars a year. What are you doing? 
And I don't know, in the end, I just want to be able to, to stand at the end of that table and said, you know, I feel like I did the right thing for me, the company. And I'll tell you what, my people and my staff, they were like, this was big for them. Like they see the owner of the company doing something like this and, and not writing a check for, you know, and saying, I don't know. It's just, it was, it was something that brought us together for sure as a company mm. and really like lived our core values of integrity. Yeah. So anyway, so I bought the house back. And uh, I didn't want to put it in the company because I wasn't sure if we were going to make money or lose money. So I ended up I ended up taking it into my name personally and not have to put the company under any stress of you know paying six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I ended up buying it myself and put it in my name. And and I haven't I still haven't gone there yet since I bought it back. So it's not like it's a vacation rental that I use or anything like that. But we started Airbnb in the house. And uh, I mean in the summer we're making fifteen sixteen thousand dollars on the house. Uh, in the winter we're losing some money on the house. And it's probably like a break even vacation rental. I had to put you know, $15,000 of furniture in there and all kinds of stuff. So recently, just a couple months ago, a hurricane came through Pensacola as I own this house. So I, I, I was airbnb it and I was ready to sell it. It was summertime and I was like, I'm selling this house. I'm done with the ups and downs of it. I don't want to deal with it. And I personally am, am removing a lot of my single family homes from my, my portfolio. So um, we put it under contract for $700,000 to sell. So just like I thought, we were going to probably lose about $10,000 on the sale. So we were going to be at like a break even, right? Ooh, were you thing. selling it before or after this hurricane? I was selling it before the hurricane. So before the hurricane came through, I had it under contract uh, to sell. I think the hurricane came through uh, the beginning of October, middle of October. And this house was supposed to be closed by the end of October, like October 21st or something. And so the hurricane came through and destroyed this house. <laughs> like, it did. Like, Oh my so it's, this had first floor finished square footage for it's three, three stories, first, second, and third floor. The first floor uh, had the ping pong table and uh, a couple bedrooms, bunk beds, like all this really is fully finished, uh, insulated everything and a garage, two car garage, elevator, all this stuff, right? Second floor, beautiful layout, main living area, kitchen, a uh, couple bedrooms. Then the, the third floor is all master bedroom and bathroom overlooking the waters, beautiful house. Hurricane came through and it looked like somebody just, it looked like a house on pilings after that. You couldn't see the wall of the first floor. You couldn't see any furniture. You couldn't see any flooring. The tile floor is gone. The hardwood's gone. Everything's gone. The elevator gone. Garage door's gone. I mean, you can't even tell. It looks like somebody took a, a knife about 12 feet up and just cut the drywall. Like it looked like it looked like a restoration company came in and cleaned it up. It's just house on pilings now. And um, wow. just destroyed the house like two weeks before closing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. And it's like all storm surge came up. The water came up. The pool is gone. The dock's gone. The boat lift is gone. Everything's gone. It, you can't even... The backyard looks like it's just sand. Everything's... I, I mean, I've never seen a pool look like that. It's just washed away everything around it. It's like a fiberglass surround just sitting there. It's, it's crazy. So tons and tons of damage to this house. And so I'm still dealing with it right now. Insurance. Does insurance cover it? So we have flood insurance on the house and we have homeowner's insurance. So yeah, we're working on that right now. I've never done this before. I've never put insurance claims out. So I got a public adjuster that I'm working with now who's... We're probably going to have to go to court against the insurance companies to get everything that we need to get out of it. And they basically take like anywhere from 10 to 20% of what you get from the, the claims. But they're... I mean, the amount of work that they do for this is incredible. So we had to get a restoration company come in. And it looked like the second and third floor were going to be fine. But there's so much water and that came in from the roof and down the side. They had to basically gut the whole first floor and a lot of the second, the whole second floor and a lot of the third floor. So, so are you still it, rehabbing it? Uh, well, right now it's sitting there. 
There was no electrical power to the house because the electrical meter got washed away. So we had to build a temporary wall on the uh, ground floor to put the electrical meter back on to get the air conditioning running again. And so right now it's sitting, waiting for the insurance uh, adjusters to finalize, come through, get our check, all that stuff. So it's, it's a total disaster. What I was hoping would happen, here's what I was hoping, the best outcome would be that that, that ground floor got wiped away. We can come back in and just make that a piling house with like parking, right? And build the uh, build the deck back. And I mean, there's no deck there. You can't even get into the house. There's no stairs. So build the deck back. Build the uh, front deck, back deck, and make it a two story house because the, that that first floor doesn't give a full price square footage, right? It's maybe like. 50-60% that you would get of a price per square foot of a house. And then like get the insurance claim and then sell the house for maybe 450 instead of 7 and hopefully make some money or break even yeah. again. And so when they had to come through and gut kind of the second and third floor, it kind of crushed that. So we'll see what well, happens. I don't understand why did you have to fight the insurance company <clears throat> to well, get reimbursed for this. So the insurance companies, and I'm not saying that I would definitely have to, but a lot of times what happens is they say, okay, well, the flood insurance will cover like that ground floor that got washed away, but not all this other stuff or any other damage or, or we're not going to pay you for that boat dock and that boat lift, you know, and the pool, but we'll give you all the, the house stuff. And so, I mean, we're talking a really big claim here, like three, $400,000 check that we're going to be fighting for where they're going to try to say, it doesn't cost that much to rebuild that. You can do it for cheaper. I did go through one other small insurance claim, even for like $5,000. And they were arguing the fact that like my contractors at my price to do a $5,000 job, they were trying to tell me what should cost $2,200. And like, I can't even get the blown in insulation that I needed done, like the spray foam insulation for that and the drywall work. So I just know what they do. And they try to find loopholes in the, in the contract and things like that to try to get out of this stuff. And just, I didn't, I don't know the process either. So when an insurance adjuster comes, then I have somebody representing me. And in this case, it's a public, we actually are going with an attorney for the flood. So the attorney can handle all that stuff, go to court, take care of it, and make sure that we get as maximize our money out of it. So is this a, um, <clears throat> is this a big national insurance company? Yeah. So my, my flood policy is a state, like a, a state public policy. And then my, my homeowner's policy is a is a bigger national company. Yeah. And so like making sure that there's the right balance between homeowners payout and flood payout and stuff like that, like what came from the roof, what came from the flood, uh, all that stuff. It's just, it's an area that I'm not comfortable navigating either. And like they are filling out all the paperwork, they handle everything, all the communications go through them. Like I, I like paying people for yeah. doing stuff. I don't know what to do. And so I'd say I'm 99% sure that the net to me will be significantly higher using a public adjuster than it would be if I did it myself. Interesting. Just so we're clear here, everybody understands. Bill, you hired a public adjuster who's kind of like, who's an attorney actually, but they're representing you and helping you do all the legwork and making sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and kind of represent you to, and it sounds like there's two insurance companies, to the insurance companies, right? Correct. So if you think about it, it's like, it's like, why would I go to court and have a lawyer? You know, like they do it every single day, you know? And in this case, this is a total, it's a world that I have no idea about. A public adjuster is able, I mean, this is all they do. And they do these policies and they're doing, they're working with these companies over and over for the same hurricane right now for lots of other people. So they they know what kind of responses they're getting. They know how they know what to do. They know where to go. They they know all that stuff. I mean, you put yourself in a world where you've never been through this before. I just I don't know. If if I was renovating a house that 
that had caught fire before. Like I would want to be partnered up and coached by somebody who does fire restoration homes all the time. Right. And that way I don't get in trouble for the first one that I do, where maybe I don't do something to the main joist of the house that had some sort of damage by fire. And it comes back on me two years later that somebody's suing me. Right. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. I really, I want the professional, I want the person that's done thousands of these instead of navigating through it my the first time. I, I'm Makes a big sense. proponent of bringing in the big guns, the people that know what they're doing, that can help you. Uh, because in the end, number one, my time is worth a lot. Mm-hmm. And number two, like their expertise is worth like 10 times probably what they're going to get paid. Wow. All right. So let's talk about lessons learned here. I'm, I'm taking notes as we kind of go through this. First thing I thought about was this house. This wh- What would you have done differently? Would you have, in, in terms of when you originally bought the house, what would you have done differently? I would have bought three uh, inexpensive houses instead of this one expensive house, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, think, I think for me, the big, the big aha, the big takeaway that I had was, you know, stick to your, if you're going to be a house flipper, stick to your, you know, your first and second time home buyers. Unless, and the caveat I'll give is unless that is what you do. Like if you're specialty, and I know a lot of people that they are luxury home flippers and they do really, really well. They do make six figures per deal or more, but that's what they do. Like that's who their contractors are. That's the materials that they use. That's their expertise. They know that. They know what kind of design looks good mm-hmm. to move. They know what kind of time's on market. They build it into their calculations. Basically what I did was I tried to take the business model that I was doing of the, the median home price type homes, and I tried to put it into a higher end property. And it was a mistake for me. And so now, so if you are a first and second time like home buyer, that's your, your market, that's where you are, you're in that median home price, just stick to, stick to what you do. The singles and doubles are great, you know, just keep hitting them. And because what I didn't realize was, yeah, I can make a $100,000 profit, but I could also lose $100,000. And the price adjustments, the price reductions for time on market when you're in a $150,000 house is like $5,000 to $10,000. And that gets more eyes on it. When you have a $550,000, dollars $700,000 house, you got to drop the price $50,000 to get any interest from uh, on the MLS, right? When it's gone yeah. cold. Oh man, some and, people are even listening to that thinking that's not really that expensive of, an house, of a house, right? Exactly. Yeah, My, just keep in mind, that's, that's in a median home price, it's like one fifty. Yeah. So if your median home price in San Diego is $500,000, then this is like a, you know, two and a half, $3 million home for you. Jeez. My, the only two rehabs I've done, I've lost money on. And I lost money for two, one, uh, one or two very good, simple reasons. Outside of my wheelhouse, it was not something that I was good at. And I was good at just wholesaling, flipping them fast. And the main reason I think though, because <clears throat> I could have made money on them, but they were overpriced. So like in the St. Louis area at the time, the median home price was maybe 150. These were $450,000, houses, just like you were talking about. The other big thing that I didn't factor in was because at that time in 2005 and six, everything was selling like crazy, but I didn't factor in, well, this was 2007, I think the market crashing number one, but you're, you're absolutely right. When buyers on that higher end, they're a lot more picky on what they're going to buy because they have more money. They have, uh, they're not necessarily in a hurry to to find the house. And um, I, the two properties, one was kind of way too far away. And the other one had a really steep backyard. It had no backyard pretty much. And you know, you got, I, I didn't think in terms of are people not going to, if they're going to spend that much money on a house or they really want to live that far away, if they're going to spend that much money in a house. Do they really, are, are they going to be just okay with having a bad, very sloped backyard that looks down onto a real busy street? No. I mean, so so many things you got to think about when you're in that upper price range. When you're in the lower price range, that kind of stuff is maybe easier to forgive. But 
Okay. Yeah, there's uh, 15 people behind them that are waiting to get in to look at the house. You know, it's not like, oh, we'll just wait a couple more weeks or keep looking. Or like you said, they're not necessarily as motivated to move. They're not leaving their apartment to buy their first house. They're yeah. like leaving their million dollar house to buy a $1.4 million house. Yeah. So it's like no problem. Yeah. Okay, cool. The uh, What are some other lessons learned in terms of, um, were there any other, other lessons learned in terms of buying it? Should you have done anything differently? Should you have done a deeper inspection? before you bought it? You know, I think I bought this house, right? Like there's, I've had wood rot issues and I mean, it's on the salt water. There's, you know, I did a pre-listing WDO inspection. We did it, that WDO inspection with that lady. And then we did another one with this, the end buyer. Like it's just, there's, you know, I think we did as much right as we could on that. And we bought, we bought the house very right. I mean, I think we bought it for like 350 or something. I mean, it was a great deal. If, if you would have fixed all the wood rot, how much would that have cost you? Oh, not not much. Probably probably fifteen or twenty thousand dollars max. We we could have ripped off all the siding and fixed all that stuff for about that. Wouldn't been that bad. Wow. Okay. I mean, we just didn't know about it. If we knew about it, we would have fixed it. No no doubt about it. You know, if the same thing happened on the other house that I lost seventy thousand dollars on when the when the inspector came, they found a whole bunch a whole a whole wall of the house that needed repair, and we repaired the whole thing. Like we did it all. So is this a common problem with houses on the beach? Is it just oh, yeah. mixture from the from the water. Yeah, this is this is pre-hardy siding and stuff like that. You know, you got wood siding, you've got you just got years and years of of water damage from the from the water, from the rains, the hurricanes that have come through all kinds of stuff. So, so if you were to buy a house there again, would you just budget for all new siding? Uh if I yeah, yeah I won't buy a house there again, by the way, Joe. <laughs> I'll, I'll be renting these houses from now on uh, when I go down there. Yeah, uh, for sure. I, I definitely would or I I think about that. We'd do a deeper inspection and stuff. We'd we'd probably pull off a couple boards of siding to take a look behind the walls for sure. Okay. Some lessons learned. What would you have done differently when you were marketing the home and selling it and you know with that first buyer you know would, would you have um, been more accommodating to her would you have done that again yeah and you know and we have i'll say to those uh, this was this was probably early on in my career i might may have, maybe i flipped 50 or 60 houses at this point and i would say the person who comes around first is usually your best buyer that's usually what happens and so somebody that's this motivated this excited to do it yeah she did a bunch of inspections but i mean looking back even if i spent $50,000 on all the stuff that she wanted done i would have made way more money at this point and been a lot more relaxed today and less gray hair, I think. So yeah, I, I definitely, I, I'd say just just put yourself in their shoes uh, every now and then and just realize what they're doing. Like if I thought like, hey, this is a huge purchase for her. This is her forever house. Um, yeah, she wants a couple extra inspections. She's She wants to a couple more repairs. Like, you know, so, there is a limit to that, but just to be accommodating. And, uh, and we have been. Since then, I learned a lot of lessons like that is just, you know, understanding. And and also when you're working with realtors, it's like the game of telephone. It turns into like us versus them a lot. Yeah. You just try to figure out what, you know, what's going on with that person? What do they need? How can we help them? That's the attitude that we always show up with. And I wish that the the end buyers that were suing me came to me with that same attitude of, hey, would you help us with this before they start, you know, talking to the lawyers and stuff. That's very good. I hope you guys heard that and rewind, listen to what Bill just said there. Be more understanding. Put yourself in their shoes with those picky buyers. They're frustrating. Okay. So anything that you would have done differently in terms of the listing of the property in terms of should you have maybe have had more language in your seller's disclosure statement? 
uh, of like, hey, buyer beware, you know, uh, there may be things in here. Because I'm sure you had a seller's disclosure statement. They didn't accuse you of, or did they? Did they accuse you of knowingly hiding this stuff? Yeah, so that that is what they were accusing us of. So yeah, we have a disclosure that says, you know, a seller has never lived in the home. They're an investor. You know, we can't can't opt out of the seller's disclosures, but there's a lot of don't knows that I check all the time if I don't know, you know? And and that was one of them, you know, all the kind of wood rot. And it's worded, the Florida disclosure is worded, I don't know, I think it's pretty poor. It's kind of like, do you knowingly have information about this? Or some of them are like during your ownership and some of them are forever, like yeah. even outside of your ownership. So, you know, we answered it to the best of our ability. And and certainly I think that we disclosed everything that we knew about and covered. And I mean, having, I just wasn't re- willing to roll the dice and risk that, you know, and, and risk a judge because this is a woman, a spouse, like a, a husband and wife that are retiring in this house. And there's this house flipper that does this for a living and, and makes money and has a podcast and has other things. So like just kind of me trying to whoa, put myself... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did that come <laughs> into this whole thing too? Not, not yet. But here, but when I'm thinking about going to court, oh. I'm thinking about how do we, how do we look on the outside Versus how, who are we going up against and how does that judge slash jury look at it, you know, and they're the ones who's going to make that decision. That puts a whole new spin on this because you have a more of a public image of somebody who has a podcast, who teaches, who has a reputation, an online reputation is kind of well known. So that plays into that, doesn't it? And it did. And for me at that time, you know, we were talking about, you know, how much money we make and and things like that. And what's, and granted, this house was not a moneymaker for us. And frankly, it was a huge headache, but it's it, that I guarantee that's that's the lawyer's conversation with that couple was going there. This couple was from like Nowhereville, Alabama. Great, like seemed to be a really nice couple, but it was obvious that they were being manipulated by the attorney when I, when I sat down. Like they they seemed to be very nice, but it's obvious that somebody was in their ear talking about how bad of a person and a company we were. And so right then I was like, there's not a there's not a lot of wiggle room here for me to kind of have a conversation to, to win or win them over to the fact that I do want to do everything that I can to help them. And I just wish we had the opportunity to talk before that. And I'm, I'm just, I can only assume how that lawyer found out about it, had like been referred to them. And they were probably like, we just want this thing fixed. We just don't want to have to pay for this. And if they just talked to me, we would have gotten there. But then the lawyer's like, well, we can get a lot more than that from for you. And so I, as far as I go, I think, I think the biggest thing for anybody listening, if you get into uh, this situation, this legal situation, my advice for you is to figure out like what's best for you. And in this case, do I think that I did everything right? I'm happy with the decision that I made, even though the outcome is horrible. I feel like I stood my ground. I I didn't, I, I stood by my values and the person that I am. Sure. And that doesn't mean that if you are sitting there saying that you would pay $20,000 or $10,000 or $40,000 for them to go away, that you are a bad person at all. Either. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people would disagree with what I did. Some people would agree. I'm, I'm happy in my skin and the decision that I made and what was best. And, and I, it's on me. Like it wasn't even the, it's the company reputation. Also, it's, it's everything else that we're going to be doing. I was thinking about the future, but you have to make a business decision. And in business, I probably didn't make the best business decision here, but I probably made the best decision for me personally and who I am. And, and I, I can live with that. So you, you said you're happy with your decision. What would you have recommended so if somebody else brought you this deal who was a student or a client and uh, was asking for your opinion? What, what advice would you give them to do? Fight it in court or buy the house? Those are your three choices. Uh, I would tell them their st- my story uh-huh. and I would tell them the outcome of my story and I'd hold up a mirror 
and I tell them to make their own decision. So I'm never going to tell somebody what to do. And when you say like your students coming to you for advice, I'm not someone who's going to tell you what to do ever, never. I'll never do that. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you some ideas. I'll give you some some information. But I'm always like the answer is inside of us. Each each one of us. The answer is in there. And it's just you know that usually the teacher, the mentor, the coach is the, just the person who can hold up the mirror to show you the answer that you already know. Like you already know everything that you need to be successful in this business. You just need somebody to hold up the mirror and show you. So I would never tell anybody what to do. And I'm always just going to have a conversation with them, point them back to your YouTube channel here, let them listen to this and say, Hey, wh- what are you going to do? And then, and then I would actually be interested in there in what they would think they would do. And then I might probe a little bit, dig a little bit and say why. And, and then like, look, I, I flew airplanes and helicopters for a long time, almost 18 years for the Navy. And I know that I, I make decisions that are life and death. This is not even close to a life and death decision, right? And I just know that I have to take the information that I have at the time, make the best decision that I possibly could to get that outcome and be able to stand at the end of that long table at the end of the day and say, I did this, this, and this because of this. And that's my decision at the time. And there's always people that are going to you know, Monday morning quarterback it and just kind of decide whether I made the right decision or not. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But I'd like to say that with the information that I had at the time, I made the best decision that I could for me. This would be great comment fodder. So if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook right now, type in the comments, what would you have done? Would you have bought the house like Bill did? Would you have fought in a court with a jury, the whole lawsuit? Or would you have settled um, and for how much? I don't know what I would have done either. By the way, if it helps you at all, they really had no proof. But the reason I mentioned the scaffolding and the ladder in the opening was because they they had those pictures and they were saying, look, these guys were working on the windows and they knew about it. And they were, this is pictures of them covering it up. But it was actually pictures of us fixing the one that that came up on our original inspection. So yeah. we had an original pre-listing inspection that showed that stuff around the window. We fixed it. While the realtor was taking the pictures, it it was up. The scaffolding was up. So I could actually point to the window that they're talking about. I said, do you have any pictures of that window with with the siding off? And they did. And it was all new wood. And the other windows looked horrible. So when I see that, I'm like, a judge is looking at this like, how could this house flipper not see this? I mean, it were bad pictures. It was bad. But it's all hidden behind siding and, 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 and sheathing and, and everything, right? And so you got to rip all that stuff. We never ripped all that stuff up. And we had professionals come through. So there was some, like there was some really healthy, like emotional stuff that a judge and jury could have looked at like big bad house flippers taking advantage of the of the grandparents. Yeah, and unfortunately that happens a lot in Florida. I'm not p- saying anything bad about Florida, but um, there's kind of a bad reputation that investors and rehabbers have in Florida and with all of the mortgage fraud and the housing bubble and the crash, a lot of the problems that um, happen in the housing market and in the economy get blamed on greedy, money-hungry investors, which is unfortunate and, and not true. Okay, so let's talk about lessons learned then with the whole hurricane, the insurance and things like that. Would you have done anything different? Would you have gotten different kind of insurance, better insurance, a better insurance company? No, I mean, I, I, I do think that you should look at your insurance companies. It pretty much went with like the cheapest premium on the flood insurance because I was like, uh, even if it floods, it's it's just going to be a, a smaller a smaller flood. But uh, no, I think we have I think we have good coverage and oh, <laughs> jury's still out on that one, right? We'll see how it goes. But I'm, I tell you what, I'm really happy that I have flood insurance and it wasn't something that was required. It would be required by a lender, but it wasn't required for me to have it. I do know that that area has flooded before. And so kind of looking at that and realizing that I should have it, I got it. And I was even freaking out because our premium was up like two weeks before the hurricane and I wasn't, I didn't pay it 
And so I was freaking out, but my CFO paid it. So she's, if she's listening to this, she, she got a raise that day. So they're not going to let um, you pay that late after the uh, hurricane. No, no, you definitely aren't paying that late. So I was, I was freaking out. I spent 20 minutes looking for, for the bill and to see that I paid it. And then I just sent her a text message. She goes, Oh yeah, I paid that. I was like, Oh, thank you. So did you know in Missouri, we have the new Madrid fault line. And so they asked me if I wanted to add earthquake insurance to my policy. And I did, it's only an extra 20 or 50 bucks, 20 or 30 bucks a month, I think. But those kinds of things, yeah. What if there was an earthquake, you know? And I asked her, I remember how many people have it. She said, maybe only 20, 25% of people have it. I don't know. Do you have earthquake insurance in Tennessee? Do you, do you need it there? No, I don't have it. I will say that I will say that insurance has always been a thing for me that I'm like, why am I paying this? And I've heard so many people say, yeah, I totally agree with you until you need it. <laughs> like it's, um, and I, we'll see how this goes, but without that, I mean, it would be a devastating couple hundred thousand dollar loss for me. So, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Do you have a professional liability, any kind of business insurance? Would that have protected you from a, a, a lawsuit like this? No, I don't, I don't think that it would. Uh, li- uh, the liability probably would have covered us for like maybe some contractor suing us or something like that. As far as this goes, I, I don't think that it would. Um, we do have, we do have that, but you know, I have, I have umbrella insurance personally. I have some other, like they didn't come after me personally either. So I was kind of waiting for that to see what happened. Because you bought the house in an LLC, right? You were selling it. You were on title probably as an, as an LLC. Did that give you any kind of protection doing it in an LLC versus your personal name or not? No, nothing that, I mean, yeah, they, they likely probably couldn't come after me personally unless they found some reason to. And that's probably why they didn't. I'll say that uh, one thing that I did meant didn't, we, we kind of like touched on, but I didn't, I didn't like close it out. Um, everybody that was involved in that, the contractor, the realtors, all that stuff. I got, I got some document. I said, look, I'm going to buy this house back, but you need to waive all, all litigation against anybody else that was involved in this property. And so I got them, they all were off the hook, everybody. Uh, so my contractor, my agent, everybody, the one thing that, that came up a lot was like, why didn't this go through the brokers, uh, in insurance, like uh, through some of their policies and stuff like that. And I didn't really go down that road, but I think there might be some people on this call that are brokers or agents that are like, man, this should have gone through like some of the real estate agents, uh, insurance policies and stuff like that. So uh, definitely something that I would, that came up after the fact and something that I would explore in the future if if any of this stuff came up. So that was a lesson learned that I had. I was just talking, one of our guests before in this series had a situation, I forget who it was. Oh, uh, the the realtor they hired hired or, or got a bad tenant and the house turned into a um a huge drug house and really really bad but he he saved himself a ton of legal liability because he used a realtor to help him find the tenant and pre-screen the tenant the realtor property manager mm. pre-screened the tenant as well so that's one of the things that people forget about similar to the thing you were talking about with insurance it's like why do we need this why do i need a realtor i can do it myself but there are a lot of advantages Realtors are required to get errors and emissions insurance. And sometimes things like this can be covered. And the other good thing about realtors is they may be asking you when you're listing the house or when you're buying it, hey, have you thought about in this area, there's a lot of this kind of damage or this kind of common problem. You should get that checked out. So yeah, I I, I like working with realtors. That's for sure. Yeah, I didn't want all that. I didn't want all of them being brought in. And frankly, because if my contractor got brought in, I, I actually don't know if my contractor saw that and didn't say anything to me, you know, like I, I don't know the answer. And so that's, that's one of the concerns that I had. I called him up and I was like, Hey, is there any way that you guys could have known about this and seen it? Like if you get subpoenaed, what are you going to say? What are your subs going to say? Like who, who worked on this house? Cause I never saw the house. Like I never, I wasn't there. And so I really was trying to make sure that 
I, I don't know. Maybe there was something there if I dug like really deep. You know, when you're renovating a house, like there are four different levels of people that are seeing this that are like, yeah, I saw all that wood rot. Like, dude, why didn't you say anything? And then maybe they said something to him and then he said something and then it stopped. They never said anything to me. And so I, my contractor was like, no, he's like, the only thing that I know about is the one that is the window that we fixed. Um, and he's like, it, it, is it possible that like we would have thought it was the other windows? Yeah, probably, you know, but we didn't, weren't required to fix those. So like, where do you go to the point of um, like being insulated from all of that? So it, it's the thing for me was, I was just like, look, I, I'm just going to take care of this. Like, I'm going to be the one that takes the hit for this. I, I start, you start ratting out your friends and bringing them in. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, the last thing that I want is my contractor get pinned on something that he didn't tell me about that he knew about, or my realtor, you know, doesn't have the proper, you know, insurance. So it just, I just said, look, I'm the one under fire here. I'm going to take it. I'll, I'll take, I'll take it. Let me see what I can do. Oh, it's crazy. All right. Let's wrap this up. I mean, maybe we should do a part two of how this whole thing ends up after yeah. you get it fixed. Um, but what, what are some of the one or two biggest lessons learned from this whole ordeal? I, I think, think about this stuff before you get started. I think that's a big thing. It's like, just play through a couple of different scenarios and, and make sure that you're covered. Uh, I think we jump into, and, and it doesn't mean like, don't get started flipping houses until you have like crazy insurance and all these plans of what, what if, but if somebody told me, it's not like if you get sued, it's when you get sued. So think about some of that stuff and just kind of uh, try to protect yourself in the beginning. And I think you might hear that and say, oh man, that's too scary. I don't, I don't want to get into real estate investing then, but you're still doing deals. Right. So what would you say to somebody who is scared of this kind of thing happening to them? Well, I definitely, definitely don't, definitely don't bring it up in your head because it's going to scare you into not doing it. Because I mean, th th you wouldn't walk across the street if you said that yeah, how many people get hit by cars every year. So like, don't, don't overwhelm yourself with that. But I, I would say just, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me, the thing that I had in my corner that I recommend everybody has, and it's not just because I own a mastermind group and I, I pe people pay me to be in the group. It's, it's the fact that you got, you've got to have a, like a bullpen of people to go to, like a, a, a network of people to ask this stuff. And just like Joe talked about in the opening of this podcast is you learn from other people's mistakes and, and other people's issues. Like you don't have to learn from your own, like go learn from other people's and it'll, you shortcut the learning curve. So the fact that I had that and I had lots of other people to bounce ideas off of and experiences and stuff like that helped me tremendously. And then honestly, just to put put what I thought my decision was going to be and let him let him crush it. Like some people were like, that is the dumbest decision you could ever make. Like, what are you an idiot? And it really kind of allowed me to see all the angles and to really make my own decision and not be bullied or pushed into anything. But to honestly see like, is this truly who I am and what I want to do? Or do I think this is, you know, I'm not doing it for or any bragging rights or anything like that, or to come on a podcast and talk about how incredibly in, the integrity decision that I made, like any of that stuff, is the fact that when I was there, this is the decision that I made. And looking back, like, it wasn't a good business decision. It just wasn't, you know? I'm going through a bunch of crap that I could have avoided right now, but I wouldn't have done it any, any other way at the time. And so I, I had, a, I had a, a bunch of people to help me through that, that process. And I think everybody needs that. It's really lonely as an entrepreneur. It's really lonely as a real estate investor. A lot of times you think you're the only one going through these problems, but when you put it out there to the world, there's a bunch of other people that have been there, done that. Um, they have great advice for you and they can help you through it. So, um, don't suffer in silence. Don't, don't do this on your own. And then I think also there's some preparation that could be made and just like listening to this and learning from other people and hopefully if one person hears this and two years from now you go through this and you remember this, this antidote that I gave, then 
it was all worth it, right? Our hour together was worth it and it's good. So I think for all of you that just, I don't know, go out there, make the best decision that you can at the time and down the road, you, you can tweak and make some adjustments, but always learn from each one of these. Like I, I learned from this. I won't make the same mistake again. I'll make other mistakes. I'll make different mistakes, but not the same one. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's so good, man. Especially surrounding yourself with good network or a bullpen of people that have been there, done that because every single deal is different, right? Every single deal has its own challenges and you can't just be a lone wolf and expect to have not make any mistakes and, and not have any failures. You got to surround yourself with people that can encourage you and tell you, yeah, that's a good idea. Don't do that. Even my wife, how many times has she saved me from bad deals? In fact, those two bad deals I was telling you about, both of them, she told me not to do it. She's like, I don't like, the, I don't like that guy. I mean, she could just, it's a, it, you know, I think it was God or something, but like, she didn't like the guy. She didn't like the deal. And I thought, nah, it's not a big deal. I can do it. I've got this, but it's important to surround yourself with people, your spouse and business associates, people in the industry that are more senior than you that can give you that kind of good advice. So masterminds, coaching programs. The other thing I'd recommend to people listening to this, if you are going to get out of your lane in terms of rehabbing a higher end deal, you should consider hiring a coach or partnering with somebody who has already been there and done that. You know, maybe the thing Bill should have done is found somebody that had already rehabbed houses in that area or in that price range in Jacksonville and said, Hey, do you want to partner on a deal? together. Um, and you can bring deals to other investors, other rehabbers and wholesalers and offer to partner with them. If you can lean on their resources and they're going to be able to tell you things like, yeah, you know, in this area, you got to watch out for this, get this inspected, stay away from that contractor, stay away from this agent, use this title company, use this hard money lender. Um, so just a little word of advice for you all. If you're going to be doing something new, maybe in a new market or a new type of deal, consider getting a coach or a mentor or just partnering with somebody who's done that before in that area. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think the, the, other, the other piece of that, you mentioned like get a coach or a mentor or somebody like that. I think a lot of times, like you said with your wife and I, it happened to me on the house that I lost $70,000 on, I had somebody who was way more experienced tell me not to buy that house. He basically said, I'm not going to lend on this house, but I'll lend on the other one down the street. And I just said, well, what, what do you know? Like, I'm going to keep buying it. I'll find another lender. And don't forget to listen to those people. Like, I think all the time, like, we think that we know better than the people who have been there and done that. And you don't. Like, you, you, not only was I part of the mastermind group, but one of the guys in there told me not to buy that house and I did it anyway. And so just looking back, it's like, why did I think that I knew better than the person who's been doing this for 10 years more than me? And he told me not to. Like, stop, stop getting in your own way. Like, get out of your way and listen to the people that are around you that are more experienced than you. And the hard part is you never know how it would have been. So like, had I not bought that house, I'd always been like, I would probably would have made like $150,000 on that house. So I, sometimes you got to learn the hard way. But if, if you're going to pay the coaches and mentors and trainers, like they already know the answer stop thinking that, you know, because you don't know, I don't know a lot of things. And, and now I'm finally at a place where I can not have my ego drive me all over the all over town. I know that I don't know stuff. And we're getting in the apartment space and syndication and stuff like that. And I don't know that stuff. So I'm finding the people for two years, I went alongside people that do know that stuff and learned it. And now I'm, I can start doing it. So um, you don't know that they know. So just listen. You know, let me say one more thing, because this has been so good. We're, we're, normally, I try to keep this at 30 minutes, Bill, but we're at an hour and two. One of the other things, too, is people may be, it's always, you should always listen to the, the people that give you, that tell you what you don't want to hear. You should, you should pay attention to them. Um, and, and you may be afraid, well, I'm going to lose this deal. 
No, listen, one of my coaches told me early on, there's a million dollar deal every day. And you got to remember that because you may be afraid you're going to lose that, or this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. You can't go chasing deals like that. There will be another deal that comes across your plate. Don't think that this is the last deal that you'll ever get. And for some reason we have that, we have this fear of loss. Like if I don't get this deal now, I'm going to lose it. You just got to have faith in the system because other deals will come across. That's great right. advice. Bill, this is so good. How can people get a hold of you? Talk about your podcast. Um, already, guys, I want to tell you, go to, like we talked about before, go to fliphackinglive.com. They just, Bill just did an event a month ago. Um, it was jam-packed, three days full of awesome content. You can still get the recordings. They're not cheap, but they're worth every penny of it. Go to fliphackinglive.com to check that out. But where else can they get you, get information about you, Bill? Yeah, and if it helps anybody, we we're, we kept the price where it was and we're donating $200 to Operation Underground Railroad for every um, recording that we sell. So it's a charity that we support uh, that I, I'm, I support here in Tennessee too. If you go to uh, sevenfigureflipping.com is uh, like the number seven. That's that's kind of where I live. And you can find me on uh, Facebook and YouTube and stuff like that. So yeah, my Facebook is at Bill Allen REI is like Facebook and Instagram. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm around. You can find me. It's not hard, right. not hard to find. Right here, Bill, at BillAllenREI.com. Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, or sevenfigureflipping.com. Bill has a podcast as well. It's called yep. Seven Figure Flipping. So go check that out. Check out this event they just did, Philip fliphackinglive.com. Get some more information about Bill. And um, Bill, hang out for a second because I want to ask you a question after we get off here. But thank you guys again, everybody. Sure appreciate you all. If you want the notes from this podcast and the links, all the resources and things that we talked about, my list of lessons learned. I have one, two, three, four, five, about 12 lessons learned. I typed into these notes. Um, you can get them by going to joemccall.com slash bad or text the word bad to 313131. And we're going to be putting these together right now. They're in a mind map. But soon they're going to be in a book or something like that. And you get access to it. Cool. Thank you, Bill. We'll see you all later, guys. Thanks, Joe.